If you're talking, JC, you're muted, I think. Yeah, I don't hear him either. Yeah, we, we can hear you, JC. He's just really excited about buffers in a silent film kind of way. I know. I, I saw the jet. And it's yeah, kind of cute. The... It's kind of cute how excited he is about buffers. It really mm-hmm. is. <laughs> it's so cute. We're going to wait for you, JC. I really did write, aren't buffers great alongside my margin? Yeah, f- raise your hand if you're surprised. And we know we know what a big deal it is for you to write. Yeah, did you write it with pencil? I found these markers. <laughs> I found these markers that are erasable, so it's like not trafe to use them. It's okay. Thanks, <laughs> John. Physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To completely understand how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm the Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we are discussing Chapter 10. We are working our way into acid base. This is an advanced chapter with lots of math. It's a hairball of a chapter. We got a crew, though, and we're going to go through it. Anna, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Anna Gaddy. I am now in Wisconsin. I'm an assistant professor at the Medical College at Wisconsin. Welcome. You said assistant professor. I want to get that right. Yes, that's correct. I'll let you know Ooh. when I'm promoted. Hopefully, we're not we're not still recording when I'm promoted. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Melanie Honig. Melanie Honig, and I'm at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. JC Juan Carlos Velez, nephrologist at Oxner Health in New Orleans. Leticia. Hi everyone, I'm Leticia Ramon and I'm a nephrologist at UCSF. Excellent. Roger. Roger Rodby, nephrologist in Chicago at Rush University Medical Center. Amy. Hi, I'm Amy Yao. I'm at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And Josh. Sure. Hi, I'm Josh Waitzman. I'm a nephrologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. So anybody have an opening statement on chapter 10? I hope that we can you know, end up with some real basic concepts that people get and not get too bogged down in the math because uh, it can get pretty far into some chemistry concepts that aren't, that don't really need to be delved into, but there are some really important ones that I do want, that I'm sure we will delve into. Yeah. I was saying that before you got here, Roger, that this was the stuff that was so hard for me in undergrad. And it's like, oh no, I, I hope I can still be a good nephrologist. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think this is the type of stuff that's very intimidating and scares people off of nephrology. And the reality is nine out of 10 nephrologists don't understand this math. And they are excellent nephrologists despite that. Right. And it's not a beaker. We're not titrating. Yeah, it's, we're not doing a titration curve in the human body. <laughs> it's not. And that's a great point, is that a lot of what is so cool about the math here almost doesn't apply because things are much more complex in the body. But some of the math is really neat, and I hope we can pull out some gems from this chapter. I, th- I don't think it's going to be easy. I think it's going to be hard for us uh, to communicate this because, like I said, it was a hairball of a chapter. Yeah, I, I, 
I agree. It's just probably one of the toughest chapters, personally, of this book. You know, we in nephrology we love calculations. We love we like elemental chemistry, uh, but this is pushes you a little bit uh, beyond the, you know what we normally use in, in clinical discussions. So, but once you go through it, I think this chapter gives you a couple of wow moments where you understand a formula and the concept behind it. And it's really like, wow, now I get it. You know, as opposed to memorizing calculations or formulas sometimes in acid-base disorders. So I want, when we're going through this chapter, when we reach one of those moments in this chapter where you're like, that crystallized it for me, let's call those moments out, okay? Because I think, I agree, there were some moments where I was like, oh, now I get it. And they're really quite cool. So let's make sure we call those, those out so we can get there. I think what I loved about this chapter is really taking it back to first principles and saying like, this is how we, this is how buffers work. This is why bicarbonate is such a great buffer for the human body. And really from those two ideas, you can get to like deriving what the plasma concentration of bicarbonate is. I thought that was just mind blowing going from a dissociation constant to like, oh, that's that 24 I see all the time. And I thought there were some really neat ideas that he builds on from that. I think this is the perfect chapter of taking things back to first principles. He absolutely does. We're going right back down to the glass beaker. Okay, let's get started. In the introduction, Burton Rose says that the hydrogen concentration needs to be regulated tightly. We're familiar with this. All the electrolytes need to be regulated tightly. The difference here is the normal hydrogen ion concentration is 40 nanomoles per liter. And he helpfully points out this is one millionth of the concentration of sodium and potassium. And that hydrogen needs to be kept this dilute. I think the words that he uses because hydrogen f*** up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna cut that out. It doesn't say. It doesn't you should say bleep that, it out. But... That was cool. Yeah. Okay, we will bleep that out. We will yeah. bleep that out because that is funny. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, hydrogen highly reactive, and he actually goes into. It. He says part of the reason it's highly reactive is it's so small. The small size of hydromium ions. Yeah, yeah. the properties related to the relatively small size of hydromium. He does, but he doesn't exactly say why. Ions, yeah. The hydrated yeah. form of hydrogen in comparison with that of sodium and potassium ions. As a result, hydrogen ions are more strongly attracted to negatively charged portions of molecules and are more tightly bound than sodium and potassium. And so we need to keep this stuff tightly controlled. And and so that's our that's the main issue. Um, and then there's the footnote that hydrogen actually exists as H3O+. Plus, and that we just ignore that factor when we talk about hydrogen H, as it, we call it protons, that it doesn't really exist as protons. But then they go, then he says it in the asterisk there that in spite of that, we're just going to call it H. <laughs> well, it gets yeah. it gets back to which definition yeah. of an acid you're using, I wrote, right? I wrote in the bottom of the page, thank you. And then in the conclusion of the introduction, he says, under normal conditions, the hydrogen condition varies little from normal due to three steps. One, chemical buffering by extracellular and intercellular buffers. Two, control of partial pressure of CO2 by alterations of alveolar ventilation. And three, control of plasma bicarbonate by changes in renal hydrogen excretion. And man, I have taught this a million times, but this chapter goes through the mathematics of how powerful the fact that you can alter the bicarb concentration and alter the CO2 concentration. That was my favorite part of this chapter was running through the math of how powerful ventilation is in terms of regulating hydrogen concentration. Very, very cool. Just making that buffer really quite a bit more powerful. Yeah. And how that buffer, and we'll get into it, but how that buffer, that, that buffer system wouldn't work without the ability to excrete CO2. I think it's also important to mention the last sentence of this introduction. Uh, We're going to discuss in this episode 
the intracellular, extracellular buffering and the respiratory mechanisms, but we're not going to get into the way the kidneys handle acid loads. That's going to be the following chapter. Yeah, right. So this is analogous. Like we had a whole chapter on osmoregulation where we approached hyponatremia and approached hyponatremia, but we didn't address it, right? We kind of talked about the processes and this is the same type of chapter, but for acid base. We're not going to talk about metabolic acidosis, but we're going to introduce you to the important processes to it. Melanie, what you got? I just wanted to add one little thing going back to the first paragraph. He kind of sneaks this in and I, I always, I think about this a lot. And you just mentioned the concentration of hydrogen ion being only, you know, 40 nanomoles compared to potassium, which should be four millimoles. And a lot of times we talk about shift between, you know, in the setting of a, maybe this is premature, but the shift when there's an acidosis that, you know, hydrogen might shift into cells to be buffered and K would come out. And that just doesn't cause hyperkalemia because we're talking about such a tiny, tiny, like itty bitty, tiny little itty bitty amount of uh, potassium that would come out. And I think that that's sort of hidden in this paragraph as a sort of a foreboding, if you will. You know, Melanie, I've thought a lot about acidosis causing hyperkalemia. You know, there's quite a bit of misconception about that, but I've never thought about that aspect of it. That's a really good point. We're talking about nanomoles. You know, you're lucky if you're going to get one millimole for somebody who has a pH of five. I mean, it's absolutely true. I, I never thought about that aspect. That's great. The weird thing there is, you know, we're talking about that. That's in terms of the hydrogen ion concentration, which is kept very, very low. But the total amount of hydrogen that's moving is not insignificant, right? Because when you get an acidosis, you'll drop your bicarb from 24 down to 10. That's not in nanomoles. That's in millimoles. That represents a massive amount of hydrogen. So the hydrogen ion concentration is very, very small because we've got these great buffers, but the absolute movement of acid is not insignificant. No, that's true. You're absolutely right, Joel. Yeah, when we when we get an acidosis, we're back in the millimole. Yeah, I wanted to add that like, two cents about this chapter is that, and I like the comparison you made to the start before we started talking about dyslipidemias, getting really into the chemistry and the really the basic principles of uh, water movement and osmolality. And I would just say that the difference with that and with the basic physiology of acid bases, I do think that it could it's easy to get lost because there's also a lot of permutations, a lot of things that like for example this what we're talking about potassium. I also feel like I remember learning this like oh when you get you, when you have an acidic environment, potassium is shifting out of the cells and things like that. But then if you look closer if there's actually other mechanisms like drag forces that are actually moving the potassium and so i do find it a little bit less translatable like into clinical practice you know this physiology in particular yeah it, that's just a classic example of a very simple explanation that is not nearly adequate to describe the phenomena right, right. exactly yeah and and i will tell you that medical students love that explanation. They love acidosis causing this exchange of potassium. There's something very visual about it. You know, anytime I talk about, well, why does metabolic alkalosis have hypokalemia? This is the first thing they reach for, right? They love, oh yeah, hydrogen ions come out of the cell, potassium moves into the cells. Like, yeah, that's going on, but that's very transient. That's not going to be what's going on. You have a lot of renal wasting. They just love that explanation. The first explanation that they always grab is, is my experience. Yeah, I have had the same experience, exactly the same experience, Joel. And I think it's just as simplistic. You've got a positive charge going in one direction, another one going in a different direction. Okay, I love the mechanism. Let's move on, right? That's probably how. Right. It's a successful model. It works <laughs> in their brain. It gives them the right answer on the test. Good. Okay. The next section is on acid and base. And just like Anna talked about, 
He says, we're going to define acids. And I'm not, there's no ambiguity here. The only way that he's going to define acids is going to be the Bronsted method, which defines an acid as something that's a proton donor and a base as a proton acceptor. And then he, he throws out some examples. He has uh, H2CO3, which is going to be a really important one. Carbonic acid, very, very important in this system. He has hydrochloric acid, ammonium, and uh, phosphaturic acid. Is that what H2PO4 is? Is that we call that phosphaturic acid? Or dihydrogen phosphate. Dihydrogen phosphate. Dihydrogen phosphate. Um, and those are all the acids, and then their base equivalents are on the other side of that. This is there's not even a figure number for that. A little table there. And then what was it? He says there are two classes of acids. You can divide all the acids into two. They're either carbonic acid or they're not carbonic <laughs> acid, which I kind of loved. I was like, okay. Bert Rose has a very dichotomic, dichotomous way of looking at the world. But the, the reason he does that, because he uses the, the adjective physiologically important. So that's the distinction, that from a physiological standpoint, there's either carbonic or non-carbonic acids. And he kind of, does he, he doesn't really describe why that division is important there. We get to it a little bit later. I, did I miss something there? No, but I thought that he... Later, like you said, later on, he elaborates on how carbonic acid is linked to CO2 and CO2 could be handled by respiratory ventilation. And that wouldn't apply to the non-carbonic acids. I don't know if that was the reason. It's kind of dangling there. He says, I'm divided into two, but he doesn't give you the reason he divides it into two, but it does come back later. But he does, and this is super important, he does point out that he contrasts the ability to ventilate CO2, that we, the lungs will ventilate 15,000 millimoles of CO2, and he compares that to the ability to excrete pure hydrogen by the kidneys, which is going to be like 50 to 100 milliequivalents. And so you have this vastly different capacity to, to clear acid. Lungs get rid of 15,000 millimoles a day. Kidneys get rid of 50 to 100 millimoles a day. And he lays it out right in the beginning. Well, this is why when you stop breathing, you live for five minutes. And when your kidneys fail, you can live for three days, right? (laughs) An important distinction. (laughs) Give it up for the lungs for one second. I've heard the pulmonologists argue that they're the real acid base. Yeah. Organ in the body. And you you kind of can't argue with that. Let's not get into that. You can't argue with that. They're not listening. We have whole chapters on respiratory acidosis and respiratory alkalosis, probably areas we've never delved before. So that will be fun. Yeah, no, that's right. This book, this book does not shy away. Burton Rose says acid base is my topic and I will talk about the lungs. And I think it's awesome. Yeah, it is very cool. So you have that coming to you. We will try to pretend to be pulmonologists for a few weeks there. It's going to be ugly, but we'll do our best. Next section of the chapter, law of mass action. And this is where the math begins. Starts out with a simple formula. H2O is in equilibrium with hydrogen ion and hydroxyl ion. And he says that the velocity of this reaction is dependent on uh, the concentration of uh, the reactants. And so he has this reaction V1 equals K1 times the concentration of water. And then he says... I'm sorry to, sorry to interrupt you, Joel. So are, that's what I was going to ask. Are we going to go through each of these equations? Because I feel like that's going to be very, very tedious. Like, I think the key for the law of mass action to, like, understand is that basically how quickly a reaction happens is based off of the concentration of the substrates that you have on either side of the equation, right? And so, I mean, he does a lot of fancy math to prove that to you, which is very nice. But I think that's the, that's the gist of the law, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Broad strokes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm good with that. Are we good with that? Uh, honestly, that's it. 
That's the point, right? Is there anything more to it? I mean, I think the only other thing I'd say here is that most of the the speeds of reactions are pretty fast on the scale that we're interested in. These are like microsecond timescales that are like so fast we don't physiologically think about them. But really, it's the equilibrium balance between the forward reaction and the backward reaction that matters. And it's really then the ratio of the concentrations of the products divided by the concentration of the reactants that leads to that equilibrium constant that determines how each of these buffering systems work. Let me ask the group here. Do you, as you walk around and as you teach, do you ever use the term law of mass action? Uh, I don't. Well, I do. I do. I do. When I teach acid base, I do derive Henderson Hasselhoff. I do it in, in only one setting, and that's the explanation of, of, of the acute compensation for respiratory acidosis or respiratory alkalosis. So H2O plus CO2 gives H2CO3, which then arrows both ways, which is NH plus and HCO3 minus. So you have an acute rise in CO2. It drives it to the right, and you end up with bicarb. And that's a free, that's free. That doesn't, that's not a renal compensation. And I always point out, you know, why do you think we have acute compensation for respiratory acidosis and acute compensation for respiratory alkalosis as opposed to the chronic compensation? And most most of the fellows, I bet a lot of nephrologists don't know that either, but that's the law of mass action that basically says it immediately happens. If you raise CO2, you end up with a little bicarb on the right. And so I do use that, but that's the extent of my knowledge of law of mass action right there. But it's a clinical, uh, it's a clinical use for you. Well, wait, Roger, can I, can I go back to that for one sec? So you raise CO2, you push the reaction to the left or, or to right or whichever way you're looking, um, and you end up with that HCO3 minus, but you also end up with that H plus. So that's that acid in the respiratory acidosis, right? I, I'm not sure I understand the acute compensation part. Can, can, can you help me understand that a little more? I understand your question, Josh, and I don't know the answer. And I think we'll probably get to it in one of these other chapters. But I think what you're asking is, I'm, I'm pretending like there's a free lunch here, that there's getting bicarb, and you're saying there's still a proton. Yeah, that's that's the respiratory acidosis that you get, right? Yeah, so, well, the respiratory acidosis is CO2, so... this, um, But the CO2, CO2 turns CO2 into H plus really quickly, Right. right, it's why the CO2 causes yeah, the it acid. combines right? with the water, it converts back through, jumps through H2CO3 really quickly, and turns into an H plus and a bicarbonate. And so that's the H plus, the acidosis part of a respiratory acidosis. And he gets to this later in the chapter when we talk about buffering. Yeah, we will go. We go through the math there. But before we go through the math, there is this. I thought fascinating little section on measuring pH. And when I started reading it, I was like, what the, why are we here? Why are we going through? And he's really, he's specifically talking about there's a glass electrode and it measures the hydrogen concentration inside the glass electrode and outside the glass electrode and its hydrogen flows down its concentration gradient and it generates a current and that generation of current is proportional to the difference between the hydrogen concentrations. It's all kind of made sense to me. And then he pulls out he does the math for the way you actually go from this current to the hydrogen ion concentration, and on the way, you get the definition of pH, right? Because you get this, the current is proportional to the negative log of the hydrogen ion concentration. In other words, the current is proportional to the pH. That was kind of one of the moments my mind kind of exploded. I was like, oh, that's why we use a negative log. It actually is related to the very way we measure hydrogen ion concentration. Did anybody else find that interesting? Nobody. Look at, no. And they <laughs> about like, okay, remind, let's go back to calculus and the logs and what this means. But 
I appreciate your enthusiasm for this. Right, because, I mean, it's not intuitive, right? We have this hydrogen ion concentration that's super low, 40 nanomoles per liter, and then we decide we're going to actually measure it on a negative logarithmic scale, which sounds like just crazy talk, right? Like, why are we using it? Why a negative logarithmic scale? And could we make it any more complicated? Right, could we? That's exactly right. This is really hard, but we're going to make it harder intentionally. We're going to take it off of a linear scale. We're going to make it curvilinear, right? We're going to do it on a negative log scale. And when this, something goes up, the other one goes down. And and by the way, we'll use a log. But it makes, oven. do you remember doing acid-base titrations in chemistry lab? I remember, so I remember yes. once. Yes, of course. My sister, I like walked in and she was doing chem, like her chemistry lab. And my sister is a, um, she's a Luddite. And I walked in and, and she was graphing it on, on graph paper instead of using Excel. And I was like, Jessica, what are you doing? At some point, you're going to hit this thing and it's going to go off your paper. Once it, you know, like you're going to have to, you're going to get six new sheets of paper and staple them all on top. And she's like, oh, I didn't know. So I was just going to keep graphing it on this paper. But I think that's kind of the point is that if you didn't do that, things would become unmanageable if you started thinking about it in a linear way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's right. why they did it, right? There, yeah. were, there were no computers that could manage giant numbers, and there were no graph papers big enough to manage the giant numbers, so they did logs and negative logs of things to manage them. I, I just think it's funny that everyone's looking at this as like a throwback to chemistry lab. This is like a throwback to like 9 a.m. this morning when I was pushing <laughs> stuff in the lab. So I, I'm, this is like, I love that we get to the current and how the electrode determines the pH of the solution that I'm stirring in. But I really appreciate it, like going back to basics here on like how a buffer works, because it, it really helps you think about like, what is a good buffer and... And how how is the buffer working to help maintain the mini homeostasis of my pretend test tube situation? The one thing I remember about those titration curves is I would always I'd be doing drop by drop by drop, and then I yep. lose my patience. And you're like, I don't know where that was. Yeah. Instantly, I was like, oh, gotta go backwards. <laughs> it was, I was the worst in yeah. organic chemistry. Yeah. Makes me miss it actually a little bit and seeing this because I agree with what Amy was saying is that, you know, now we're so caught up and, you know, in the clinical application that going back to this, I, I guess I do get a little uh, nostalgic thinking about this. Like, oh yeah, I remember when I was doing these things. But again, I do an example of why you may not have a very firm grasp on these equations and the, what it means, but you could still be a very good nephrologist. <laughs> I feel like but I'm this is also why they made us but do anyone that. who misses this can come back and work with me. That's fine. <laughs> I don't, you're not making a strong argument for that coming here at 930. <laughs> like, I don't really want to come work with you, Josh. Thanks. The end result of using this pH is we get this, this is in table 10.1, where he has a relationship between the arterial pH and the hydrogen ion concentration. And we know that a normal pH of 7.4 is the normal hydrogen ion concentration of 40 nanomoles per liter. And he kind of draws out by every tenth of a pH unit, what the hydrogen ion concentration is. And what I always teach my students and residents is that every movement of 0.3 is a doubling or halving of the hydrogen ion concentration. So going from 7.4 to 7.7 drops the hydrogen ion concentration by half. So you go from 40 to 20 and going from 7.4 to 7.1 doubles it from 40 to 80 and going from 7.1 to 6.8 doubles it again end to 160. And I just kind of emphasize this non-linear that as you go down the pH scale, you get larger and larger jumps in hydrogen ion concentration. Which is interesting because we still think of the pH scale as linear, like from 7 to 7.3 to 7.2, it's the same. And it's not the same based on what you just said. 
Well, and clinically, I think that's important. Like, so in clinic, when someone has, you know, that when they have CKD and their bicarb is, you know, 20 or 18 or something, I don't do a VBG to see if they're really truly acidotic. Whereas in the ICU, if I get a consult, I'm always checking a blood gas. And if it's 7.31 or 7.2, I'm like, oh, that's not that bad. But in reality, it's so dramatic, really, from what they should be. It doesn't like get us excited. So if you're a student or something rounding with us and you see my reaction to somebody whose pH is that, you'd think it was not significant. But in reality, it's a humongous drop. Yeah, I think that gets back to the idea we were talking about at the, at the beginning, that the bicarbonate chain shows you the magnitude of acid that's being created at the physiologic process. But the pH is giving you a sense of how well that buffering system is working. It's taking your bicarbonate normally is at 24 and you've dropped to 10 in really bad metabolic acidosis. You've made 14 milliequivalents of acid. But because the bicarbonate buffer is so good, your your hydrogen ion concentration's only gone from 40 to 80 in nanomoles as opposed to the millimole like million times higher than nanomole level of concentration change so it's that buffering system yeah, really and work. we're going to go through a bunch of examples of this which i think that to me was what was the most interesting of this chapter was the changes in the when he actually back calculated hey here's the change in these bicarbonate the, and the co2 what was the change in the in the hydrogen ion concentration, which was fascinating. But to get there, to get there, we need to go through the Henderson-Hasselbach formula, which is the next chapter. Before we get to that equation, uh, Joel, since we're talking about this 40 nanomoles of, per liter of, of H+. plus, You know, the table 10-1, I want to ask the group whether you use that. You know, this is a, the typical table that has uh, on one column the pH going from a alkalimic pH all the way down to a very acidemic pH of 6.8. And a second column shows the concentration of hydrogen going from 16 nanomoles per liter for the very alkalinic pH, going all the way down up to 160 um, nanomoles per liter in a very acidemic pH. And this situation where sometimes we are facing an ABG, an arterial black acid analysis, and we have to check for internal consistency uh, whether the pH and the PCO2 and the bicarbonate make sense all together. Personally, I have faced clinically, I remember one time early on as a trainee where the syringe was filled with heparin, like a quarter of a syringe of heparin, and that created a completely crazy ABG and it was clearly inconsistent. But after that event, I've only encountered inconsistent ABGs in tests, board exams or quizzes where people come up with an ABG and I say, okay, wait a second. If your PCO2 is 50 and your bicarbonate is 20, your pH cannot be 745. You know, in, in some situations, it's pretty obvious that the PCO2 and the bicarbonate cannot explain the pH and you don't need this uh, internal consistency table. But sometimes it's not that obvious and you have to use it. But I don't know if you guys use it clinically at all. I've, to be honest, I've used it more as a teaching tool uh, to explain the, I, the yes. concept rather than any clinical application. I use it like crazy. And I think you're right about, you know, test questions. People get lazy and they don't even bother to see if it's a real possible blood gas. The only time I've ever seen a mistake is when it gets written down improperly. And, you know, if something doesn't make sense and you go back and, yeah, they, they put it into the computer wrong. No, I've got this little in my, you know, phone. I've got a little 
table that's not this one. It's got, you know, 16, 17, 18, every nanomole and the pH associated with it. Because as we'll get to the simplified Henderson-Hasselbach later, you know, nan uh, hydrogen ion in nanomoles is equal to 24 times the PCO2 and divided by 24 using PCO2 in, in um, millimeters of mercury. I use it all the time. And I don't use it just for that, but I use it to say, okay, we don't like this pH. Let's say we want to make this pH this pH. What do we have to do to the PCO2? What do we have to do to the bicarb to get there? So I think it's a very useful table and I have the whole table available for me. How much bicarb do I want to give somebody if I want to raise them so much? You know, what's the bicarb or the, what is my PCO2 goal? What if I put them on a ventilator and they drop their PCO2 by five? What will the new pH be? No, I, I like it too. And it just... And just to clarify, the table, the numbers on the table come from utilizing the formula that Roger was talking about that we're going to discuss a little bit later. Right. Which is the Henderson-Hasselbach exactly. formula, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I, I am completely guilty of making that mistake, creating problems. <laughs> I had created a whole problem set of acid base. And then when I realized that the pHs I was picking were totally off, I went back to the Henderson-Hasselbach equation. But the good thing is that there's online calculators that can help you do this. And you well, just have to play it's, it's going to be, you know, there are some one uh, online calculators that are not that good. Unfortunately, you have to go to the right one because you can plug some random numbers that make no sense and the computer tells you, oh, primary metabolic alkalosis. So I would be careful with some random online calculators. No, no, this one is strictly like just gives you Henderson. For the pH. Yeah, exactly. Just, oh, just okay, pH. okay, uh -huh. okay. And Leticia, I'm totally with you. Like I make sure that anytime I create equations for third years to go through, they, I run them all through H and H to make sure that they are possible equations. Because the last thing I want them to come up to me and say is, Dr. Huff, this is an impossible ABG. And, and JC, I love that you said that they come up on test questions. Cause I, in my experience, you know, what, what, what have I done? I've done, uh, a USMLE part one, part two, part three. I've done internal medicine boards, pediatric boards, nephrology boards, recertification for IM, recertification for nephrology. And in every one of them, there's always been one question. It was clearly like they wanted you to know the Henderson Hasselbeck formula. And there's never been two, right? It's always just been one question. I tell the, I tell the medical students this. I was like, you know, you got two strategies here. You can either box it, right? You can just say, hey, it's only one question. There's a lot of questions. I'm going to get this one wrong. But the other thing is they don't give you a logarithm table. Right. So when you, if you look at the Henderson Hasselbeck formula, we're about to get there. You get the, the bicarb is in the numerator and in the denominator is the PCO2 times 0.03. And that ratio either has to be 100. So the log of it is two, 10. So the log of it is one or one. So the log of it is zero. So you, the possible answers are 6.1, 7.1 or 8.1. Those are the only possible way, unless they give you a logarithm table. So I, I that's the little cheat code. So you can get that answer right. Okay, are we ready to go on to the H and H? The Henderson Hasselbeck formula. I thought it was a very bold move by Burton Rose to not use bicarb in his example. That he uses the phosphate equation. I was like, oh, this was it's it threw me for a loop. Every time I'd ever seen the Henderson Hasselbeck formula uh, derived or showed, it was always bicarb because that's the one that's so important. I had that memorized, oh, the pKa of bicarb is 6.1. But apparently here, the pKa of the equation of H2PO4 and HPO4 is 6.8, making it even a better buffer than bicarb in terms of how close it is to physiologic. He runs through the derivation. I don't think we can do this on a podcast. You guys, any, any thoughts on the Henderson Hasselbeck formula in this section? Jumping ahead a little bit, but it's real important, I think, to understand that 
you know, when we start talking about buffers, that they work best when the pKa of the buffer is closest to the pH you're trying to deal with. And I think, Joel, you just alluded to that when you said the pKa of, of this phosphoric acid uh, combo is 6.8. And on face value, it's a better buffer than the carbonic acid, which was, uh, what, 6.1? Yep. And when you look at figure 10.2, which is a, you know, titration curve, it really shows that for the pH to be the same as the pKa, the concentrations of the base and the acid of that both are equal, which makes them one. So that just cancels out, and therefore the pH becomes the pKa. Therefore, when you're at that level, at that middle level, you've got just as much base and just as much acid. So you have the maximum buffer capacity because you add a little bit, it goes up. You add, take a little bit, it goes down within reason. And I think it's for our readers, make sure you get a good sense of figure 10 too, because these titration curves are really, really important to understand what a buffer does. Yeah, this is this is one of those sections in the book where like, I know we're excited about new modes of learning. I know we're excited about podcasts, but like sometimes they're just things that work really well with a pencil in your hand and reading the paper and just writing alongside it. And it's like a physics problem set and you just got to do it that way. Like, five times or 10 times, or, or if you're lucky twice, but like, you just got to do it with a pencil and a piece of paper. And then it just sticks for you. And I wish we had another way to do it, but that's really the way there is. I think Josh is right here. I think the best advice is get this chapter, take a look at it, walk through the math with Burton Rose as he goes through the deriving the Henderson Hasselbach formula, all the steps that got there. The Henderson-Hasselbach formula, it's just algebra. Going from the law of mass action to the Henderson-Hasselbach formula, it's just algebra. There's nothing fancy about it, right? The only thing that there is is the pKa is determined um, empirically, right? You actually have to measure the concentration of the products over the reactants at equilibrium to determine what the pKa is. You know, that's a constant at a certain, at a set body temperature. That's the Henderson-Hasselbach formula. I don't I, I mean, I think Josh is right. It really needs you to sit down and read it. I don't know what we can talk about. I'm going to move forward. He talks a bit about buffers, but I think I'm happy to move right on to the bicarbonate carbon dioxide buffer system, unless anybody saw anything important about the buffer in that buffer little section. I kind of like what he does because, you know, he gives an example of adding two millimoles of acid to a liter. And, and what that would do, what planning with the phosphoric acid, we could do it with carbonic. He does the same thing with carbonic acid system as well. But, you know, adding two millimoles of hydrogen ions to a liter, that's now two times, that's two times 10 to the minus three concentration, which is a pH, if it was one times 10 to the minus three, it would be a pH of three. And it's above that, so it's a pH less than three. And it just shows here very nicely because you've got, if you've got the phosphoric acid system here, and you add these two millimoles, what happens using the Henderson-Hasselbach showing exactly what would happen that the, the base goes up and the acid goes down slightly. And so your pH drops, but it doesn't drop. These two millimoles would drop you to a pH of two or something. But by having this buffer system, he goes through the math very nicely to show that it just, it's a minimal change in a pH. It would have been, it says here, it would be 2.7. Yeah, it would be 2.7 without anything. But having the buffer system, it drops very minimally. 6.6. And, I'm sorry? It goes down to 6.6. Yeah. Rather than 2.7, right? Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, difference. which is really, you know, really quite remarkable. Right. It's and, a, and, remember, it's a logarithmic scale. That's a 10,000 fold difference. Between 2.6 and 6.6, right? It's a huge difference. But if you didn't have the buffer system and you added two millimoles, and remember we add, you know, that's two millimoles per liter. We add about one millimole per liter per day, you know, in metabolism, one or two. What Roger meant to say is we add one mil equivalent per kilogram per day. So typical daily acid load in a Western diet is 50 to 100 mil equivalents of hydrogen per day. 
you know, if you're if without that system, your pH would drop to three. If we didn't have a buffer system, we'd be dead in about five minutes. I think the action of buffer is like acting sort of like a sponge for extra hydrogen ions, right? Like they pick up all these hydrogen ions, turn them into something that is no longer an acid, no longer like freely donating hydrogen ions to solution. And they let you maintain a pH that you can live at, which is which is the 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 point of a buffer. That's the buffering part. I have in my margin here written, aren't buffers great? You know, alongside the uh, more than 99.99% of the extra hydrogen ions have been taken up buffered by HPO4 minus in, in, in the part that, that Roger's talking about. And I think really like the idea of buffers is that they maintain a pH around the pKa or in the case of carbonic acid, which we'll get to around 7.4 because lungs and kidneys and carbonic acid are a special combo, but that they work to sop up extra hydrogen ions that are added to solution to maintain pH in a really narrow range. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to move on. So the bicarbonate carbon dioxide system is the dominant buffer in the body, and he talks. Where does he talk about the uh, what was it called? Isohedric principle. Principle. Isohedric principle, which is super important. I actually, I like that one. It's the concept that you may have multiple acid and base pairs, but they'll all be in equilibrium with one another if they're linked by a common reagent. And here that would be hydrogen ion and therefore the pH. So they'll all be in equilibrium. And because of the isohedric principle, we have a cheat. We can just focus on the carbonic acid or bicarbonate buffer system, if you will. And understanding that one and we're where you stand in, in equilibrium with that will tell you what's going on in the system as a whole. Yeah, right. Because all the buffer equations have hydrogen ion concentration as part of the equation. And there can only be one hydrogen ion concentration for the extracellular compartment. So they all kind of move in lockstep. So if you are understanding the bicarbonate reaction or the bicarbonate equation, you kind of understand all the all the buffers, which is a huge simplification because the number of actual buffers in the body, there's a lot of them, right? So we, we, we talk about phosphate, we're going to talk about bone, talk about hemoglobin, you talk about proteins, you talk about bicarbonate, but because of the isohedric principle, we can just pick one and work with it. And the one by consensus we've decided on is the bicarbonate system. And it's by far the most important because it's the, the highest. Right. I mean, bicarbonate is the big dog, right? It's it's 24 millimoles as opposed to the next closest one, which is maybe phosphate at like two millimoles. And then like proteins are like you're in micromoles at the best. So like your orders of magnitude less. And there's two other principles besides the high concentration of bicarbonate that are super important. And one is that that CO2 is not fixed. And that's kind of what he goes in when he talks about the bicarbonate carbon dioxide uh, system in this next chapter. Am I, am I right that that's, we're, we're getting to that where the CO2 mm-hmm. is not fixed? Or said another way, the CO2 is regulated by the lungs and the bicarbonate perhaps regulated by the kidneys. So you can influence that system from either direction. And said another way, this reaction would produce CO2 if the CO2 stuck around. If it were closed system, if we were a beaker and it was a closed beaker, that we would not have anywhere near the effect on the pH that we have because CO2 still has an effect. Uh, the CO2 would go up. He gives really nice examples of adding, you know, acid to your system and what the, the PCO2 by, you know, adding ice one or two millimoles, PCO2 will go up to 70 something. So the example that he gives, he says, how many millimoles of hydrochloric acid would have to be added to the solution to raise the hydrogen concentration to 80 nanomoles per liter? So we live at 40. And if you have a closed system where you have the bicarbonate buffer, how much acid could we add to raise it to 80? 
And if you can't exhale the CO2, if you're just trapped there, it's 1.1 millimoles. And that's already impressive, right? Because you're adding, you know, 1.1 millimoles, which is like 1,100 nanomoles. And that that 1,100 nanomoles of hydrochloric acid. I think it's 100,000. I think it's another three logs after that because it's... Yeah, because there's a micro in between, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Only raises it Regardless. 40 nanomoles. Goes from 40 to 80 nanomoles. He solves for that and you get about, it would require one millimole per liter. And I kind of alluded to this before, just to give perspective of that. You know, we make 50, it says, you know, 50 to 100 millimoles of, of hydrogen ion a day. And you mix that into our body water. It's about one, you know, somewhere around one millimole per day. So it basically what he comes up with is if this is how much uh, acid we would pre- be producing and that would be the, what the concentration would go up in our blood. Again, if you remember going back a minute without any buffer, we pH would be two, we'd be dead in five minutes. But having this system, the CO2, the buffer system, you know, gets the pH in the seven. Oh, it's seven point one. Low. Um, right. Without that, you go from forty to eighty, and in eighty millimoles per liter, its pH is seven point one. Seven point one, but it's not seven point one, of course, because the PCO two is not stayed. It's not. We're not in a beaker. It's an open system, and the lungs respond very quickly and, and blow it off. And that, to me, is one of the most. When I first learned that, that was one of the biggest. Oh my God! Situations in, in nephrology. I just couldn't imagine how smart that could be, or how lucky we are, or you know, whatever you want to say. That's, a, you know, I can't imagine a better possible buffer system or how we could, how we could survive without this buffer system. Right. So the next example he says, it says, okay, if you were to continually ventilate, so as you increase the hydrogen ion concentration from 40 to 80, but now we're going to keep the PCO2 fixed at 40, how much acid do you have to do there? Now, remember the first example without getting rid of any, getting rid of any CO2, you could add 1.1 millimoles. Now you can add 12 millimoles of hydrogen ions to raise the hydrogen ion concentration from 40 to 80. But he says, actually, the the lungs are even smarter than that, that in response to that acidosis, they hyperventilate. And he says, in that situation, as your hydrogen ion concentration goes up, your PCO2 will fall from 40 down to 20. I think that was the example he used was a PCO2 of 20. Is that right? Yeah. Now you get 18 millimoles. So what we've done is showing the effectiveness of the lungs allows this multiplication effect where before, at the beginning, when you had no lungs, you could only add 1.1 millimole. And in reality, now you can add 18 millimoles. It's just a, it's a, it's a phenomenal example. And I agree with Roger. This was kind of like, wow, stepping through the math really shows how powerful the lungs are, or really just an open system. The fact that we're not a beaker and that we can react to this because you're going to do the same example with bicarbonate at a, at a later point. So you wanted us to call out a moment of a wow moment. And I think this is mm-hmm. one of them in this chapter, Joel, for sure. And I just want to comment about sort of a style that Bertrand Rose has throughout the whole book that to me, it worked so well for me. He, every time he tries to explain a concept, he tells you, okay, this is what happens with your body if you get an acid load in this chapter. But in other chapters, we'll say, this is what happens to your serum sodium concentration if you get a, a water load of a liter. And then what will happen if your kidneys do this? And then what will happen if you, I give you a little furosemide to mess up the nephron? You know, and, and when he walks through that, it just makes it so, 
easy to digest. And, and he uses that approach here in this chapter where he quantifies what would happen with an acid load and how the buffer system will minimize to a certain degree the, the changes in pH and how ventilation takes place after that. But the other point that I wanted to comment is that when I learned this compensatory mechanisms and the buffer systems and the example that he used with phosphate early on the chapter, where the pH went, instead of going all the way uh, to 2.7, went from 6.8 to 6.62. Here, it goes from, instead of going from 7, goes down to 7.1. I'm sorry, instead of going to a much more acidic, it goes to 7.1. And if you add the respite, the ventilation goes down only to 7.3. But it's never back to normal. It is, all these buffer systems are fantastic and it keeps us alive, but is they're not there to normalize and you still have to use the kidney mechanisms eventually to get rid of the acid load, get rid of the water load, if we're talking about water discussions. But that's kind of a sort of a fundamental concept that I, that I take from this discussions about acid handling. I, I think this was a wow moment for me too. I was showing off that I wrote wow in the book next to this this equation here when you go from 1.2 plus x over 24 minus x to just 1.2 over 24 minus x. Those two lines don't have equation numbers, but they're on page 311. I, I think what's really cool about this is it takes the bicarbonate buffer system from just being like a a regular biochemical buffer, but adding lungs to it makes it like a smart biochemical buffer because it gets rid of the CO2 product that you normally can't get rid of in a beaker or a test tube. It just like pulls it out of the solution and chucks it away and it lets you keep absorbing hydrogen ions in a way you couldn't do with a regular buffer system. And being able to breathe down the PCO2 even further just lets you chuck even more acid out the, the lung in a way that you couldn't imagine doing in, in a biochemical system you just designed it from 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 scratch and so i think it's a really smart system by the way that equation looks like a very difficult algebra problem where you have uh, 80 equals 800 times the that fraction 1.2 plus x divided by 24 minus x i looked at that and i was like yeah you, I, you I move the 24 <laughs> minus x to the other side you multiply it out and you move it around it's it's not as awful as it looks but it's Thank it's you. nice I that it comes it. with a solution right in. Uh, I was very happy that the solution was provided yes. first easily. Yes. The, the best part of, of solving this problem is the solution is on the line right below. <laughs> but it shows you that you can really, because you can breathe, the buffer becomes a smart system and it becomes 10 times more powerful, which is a really cool takeaway here. Okay. Next section was on extracellular buffers. Actually, there's a funny line in here. Although bicarbonate is an effective buffer... To non-carbonic acids, it cannot buffer itself. So I like that. It's very meta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. and, and then there's an it even gets a numbered equation, 10-21. <laughs> <laughs> We're just like, oh, look at that. Prove it. That was that is a very weird moment. Any other comments about the extracellular buffers? This the point here is that for what, what is that? <laughs> I'm sorry. What this reminds me of is, and, and again, that point that has been made over and over, just how much proton you need and bicarb you need to move the pH because the CO2 buffer is so good. And so that a clinical question that we get all the time, well, if I give bicarbonate to a patient who has respiratory acidosis, 
how much more am I going to increase the pH? You know, have you guys, have you encountered this problem or this question in the ICU? Like, no, we don't want to get bicarbonate because we're going to drive uh, the PCO2 higher. But when you actually do the math, it's a very, very minimal, like, yeah, okay, yes, the PCO2 may go, uh, or the pH may, may change the PCO2, but so minimally because the, this buffer system is so, so robust. But uh, do you well, guys have a little... Yeah, I mean, I hear it all the time. The bicarb yeah. will go up and the PCO2 up. The bicarb is going to go up more than the PCO2 goes up. So your net pH is going to get better. And you have to realize, too, that your PCO2 is related, like everything else in the body, it's related to the rate of production and the rate of removal. So if you've got somebody who has CO2 retention, you can give them some bicarb and they'll produce CO2. But unless you're on a continuous bicarbonate drip, they'll blow off that PCO2, but that bicarb you've given them isn't going to go away. So transiently, it will go up, but then they'll reach a new steady state because the level is related to the production and the excretion. If the excretion stays the same and the production is just a cute bolus, but then you get rid of it, that's gone. So it, I don't like that argument. I think yeah. it's... There is no good data supporting the use of bicarbonate therapy in respiratory acidosis. In fact, there are several studies showing the beneficial effects and tolerance of permissive hypercapnia through improved oxygenation via the Bohr effect, increases in catecholamine-mediated myocardial contractility, and improved alveolar VQ ratios. However, severe acidemia may result in a loss of myocardial contractility and reduce the binding of catecholamine to their receptors, specifically if given exogenously, and worsen bronchoconstriction. However, these effects are individualized and may be seen at varying levels of acidemia depending on your patient. The effect of respiratory acidosis is not quite the same as the effects of metabolic acidosis, although some patients may have both. In a 1969 study, patients with compensated respiratory acidosis due to pulmonary disease were infused IV bicarbonate, and at 60 minutes, 60% of the injected dose entered to the cells or other tissues compared to 20% of the dose in normal subjects, indicating patients with a respiratory acidosis do have a base deficit. Bicarbonate therapy itself may also have adverse effects to include hypervolemia, hypernatremia, and theoretical concerns about worsening intracellular acidosis. Although the pH of cells tends to be closer to 7.1, cells are well compensated to avoid decreases in pH. In dog and rat studies, intracellular myocardial and brain cells show minimal changes in their baseline pH from 7.1 when the PaCO2 is elevated to over 100 millimeters of mercury and serum pH drops to less than 7.0. At this time, there is no good recommendation for the routine and consistent use of bicarbonate therapy in metabolic, much less respiratory acidosis. The other argument that I've heard about the discussion that is often brought up in the context of lactic acidosis, what do you give bicarb, is that there are some uh, experimental studies uh, making a case for changes in intracellular pH that are not reflected by the changes in PCO2. So by giving bicarb, you may cause intracellular acidosis and kind of impairing the benefit of the bicarb drip. But I have never seen any kind of clinical evidence to back up that. Well, the problem is the lack of clinical evidence for improved outcomes with giving bicarb, right? Despite we've been doing it for a hundred years, people don't get better when you fix their acidosis. And I believe in the pediatric literature, uh, there's actually a proven negative effect when you give bicarb and DKA. In DKA, yes, that's right. And for DKA. DKA, yeah, bad, yeah. bad. Don't give bicarb and DKA, definitely. I'm, I'm sure we'll have a half an hour on this when we get to that. Yeah, that's right. Let's, let's save that discussion for metabolic okay. acidosis because that, that will be fun. There's another section on intracellular and bone buffers. We've talked about the bicarbonate buffer, but it's not the only one. And it's essential that it's not the only one because there are forms of acidosis that it cannot 
neutralizes Melanie had mentioned, and we have various systems take care of that hemoglobin, protein, phosphates, bones that are available. And he points out that the ability of bone to buffer hydrogen is essentially infinite given the mass of the bones compared to the acid levels that we're talking about. Let me give you an example of why, how I think about that. So when you have distal renal tubular acidosis, every day you're in a positive hydrogen ion balance. Every day, whether it's mild or severe, every day you are consuming more bicarb than you're making new bicarb. So you would think at some point you would run out of bicarb, but you don't because it's when you get to a lower pH, you know, that's when the bones kick in as a buffer and your bicarb will level off Depending on the degree of distal RTA, you could level off at 8, 10, or 12, but it doesn't go to zero, which it would if you didn't have these extra buffer systems, of which the bones is a major one. Of course, the side effect that with distal RTA is then you start leaching your bones out and you get stones and nephrocalcinosis and renal failure and everything else. But they don't play a big role in a, in a normal physiologic pH, but they can play a very bigger, much bigger role when you be, become very acidotic and your own, you know, your bicarbonate buffer system gets, uh, gets exhausted. Yeah, I think it's well put. Amy, what do you got? I don't know how significant this is, but I just thought it was interesting that it seems like the intracellular and bone buffers um, respond to the plasma bicarb concentration, and then the chemoreceptors for ventilation and the extracellular buffers, those respond to hydrogen. I don't know like clinically how important that is, but I just thought it's kind of interesting that, that these two buffering systems respond to different parts of the acidosis. That's a I very guess. good point, Amy. I never thought I think it's that. just another example of things are not as simple as they could be, right? Is that we want to think that it's responding to the pH or the degree of acidosis. And he's like, actually, not so much that we see a material difference between respiratory acidosis and metabolic acidosis. I stepped on you, Anna. Oh, I was just saying that's very interesting. I never thought about that. But funny story, you guys, I, in my previous life, I used to do bone research and I really wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon before I knew anything about medicine because I thought the bone metabolism was so fascinating and I did not know that is not what orthopedic surgeons did until I shadowed them. So like an undergrad, I did bone and mineral research and I thought that was the coolest thing on earth and I still think it's pretty darn cool. This... I don't know if we're there yet, Joel, but uh, you know they talk about these clinical implications or the bone buffers, and this page might be the most closer to the clinical aspects of acid base in this chapter because you can connect nephrolithiasis with this uh, standard recommendation of avoidance of animal protein intake. You know, we talk about the kidney stones. We say drink a lot of water, cut back on salt, and cut back on protein intake. And it wasn't until I read this chapter, to be honest, that I quite understood the relationship between acid lows and bone health, how you have this reservoir of calcium carbonate, and and as uh, Roger was mentioning earlier, that how the bone health gets affected in order to handle this acid load and how that leads to increase in in urinary calcium excretion and, and eventually formation of stones. Um, so it's uh, really important because we, we give this recommendation to patients with nephrolithiasis. Yeah, and I, I think building on that point that JC is making, like it's the sulfur-containing amino acids that lead to the acid load, and it's methionines and cysteines that are more common in animal protein than in vegetable proteins or other plant-based proteins. And so it's really that cysteine and methionine burden in animal protein that's driving that recommendation for decreased animal protein and decreased stone risk. And do we know the methionine and cysteine content of impossible burgers? <laughs> I can look Josh them up. Can we does. get a sense? 
Along with other diet modifications, low animal protein diets are recommended to prevent formation of stones. But what about those plant-based meat alternatives like Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers? These patties are made from processed plant protein like wheat or soy, and in the case of Impossible Burgers, have genetic engineered heme to give it that meaty flavor. In 2021, a group from the Center for Meat Safety and Quality at Colorado State published an analysis of the nutrition content of these products. As it turns out, Impossible Burgers had significantly more cysteine than ground pork or beef, and just about as much methionine. Raw pork or beef has about 2 milligrams per gram of cysteine compared to the Impossible Burgers 4 and 6 milligrams per gram, depending on which product. And methionine is about 4 milligrams per gram in raw pork or beef compared to 2 to 3 grams in the Impossible Burger. It's notable that less methionine was lost from ground meat throughout the cooking process than it was from the Impossible Burgers. And it's also worth noting that Beyond Burgers, which are another brand of plant-based meat alternative, had closer amounts of cysteine and methionine to regular meat. Overall though, if you're trying to eat a low animal protein diet to reduce stones, these products are not a good alternative. Okay, fascinating. I was going to say, Mido's here and now we're talking about dogs. Right? Mido got two kidneys. He's not nephrectomized. They took five nephrectomized dogs and they (laughs) infused it with a bunch of acid. And then they measured the change in electrolytes. And this is exactly what Melanie was getting at very early. And we talked about how medical students love this explanation of changes in sodium and potassium. And here it is measured. They've nephrectomized the animal, so we don't need to worry about renal excretion. And it is fascinating, right? Uh, This is amazing to me. I had to look back at 1955 because I don't think you would do this today. But I think this actually proves that Leticia had a really important point earlier, and maybe I was wrong about the potassium shift, because look how big the potassium change is, 28 milli equivalents. That's a big amount. And maybe it's because the whole reason we see such a small change in hydrogen, just as Leticia said earlier, is actually because of all those cells doing the buffering. And so, yes, there would be a big amount of potassium moving out of cells in that case. Yeah, that that drag effect that they're describing. Or maybe it's, or maybe the potassium is small, but that's because there's so many other buffers and hemoglobin and so on. Although this dog study would suggest otherwise. And we think the chloride goes up because they're actually infusing chloride into the patient, into the dogs. That's right. The chloride yeah. plus 170 is because we're giving them chloride. That's I think the so. whole point there. Yeah. There is an important distinction, and that's the fact that they're using hydrochloric acid and not lactic acid, for instance, or... Acetoacetic yeah, acid. Mineral acid here. Yeah, um, because it's, yeah, because it, yeah, mineral. This does not happen with lactic acid. I mean, it does not happen with ketoacidosis. The reason you get hyperkalemia and ketoacidosis is from insulin deficiency and osmotic shifts of water pulling potassium out of the cells. It's a classic board question. In lactic acidosis, lactate will go in the cells, and so you don't have to have as as hydrogen goes in the cell, you don't have to have a potassium coming out because it, you'll achieve electrical neutrality by lactate going in. So you know, while it's true that metabolic acidosis can cause hyperkalemia for the, you know, the usual reasons we see metabolic acidosis, we don't really have that explanation because what are we usually dealing with is lactic acidosis and ketoacidosis. We don't drink battery acid typically, which is what they've done here. They've given them hydrochloric acid. So (laughs) I thought, I think it's absolutely incredible though, that they did this study and found these concentrations go up, but I don't know that it's that clinically relevant for the reasons I gave. I remember reading papers like in metabolic alkalosis, you can actually give hydrochloric acid, but I I mean, I don't think anyone does that anymore. Do you guys ever know anyone or have you ever done it? (laughs) 
I have my whole career wanted to do it. And now, you know, first of all, the pharmacy has to have sterile water and then they have to have the hydrochloric acid. And you either give 100 millimoles per liter or 150 or 150 millimoles per liter. And the equation is simple. You know, just kind of it's the opposite of bicarb deficit. You just kind of, you do the opposite. To be, then you have to mix it in glass. It has to be in a glass bottle. Uh, and then you have to have a central line because you don't want to burn a hole in the vein. And so... I never got to do it. I wanted to do it. You know, what we do now is if we get in that terrible situation, we'll just do some form of CRT and not replace, you know, and not have any buffer in the solution. So you can remove a lot of bicarb that way. But I wanted to do it so badly. And I don't know that anybody's going to do it anymore, but I would love to do an acid drip. I was just going to say, I did it once as a fellow, but the truth, the times that we wouldn't have needed to do it were patients who had uh, NG suction. And we're getting ahead of ourselves because that would be metabolic alkalosis. And now that we have proton pump inhibitors, it almost never happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they described here one time that it was done at UCSF, I don't know, like 15 years ago. And they described the glass tubing and all that, but it's true. You could also just do it. (laughs) I feel like I was always told, like, better not to play chemist on real people. Yeah. Like, Plus the pharmacy is going to call you. you Very wise. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But you know, we that's exa- but that's exactly what we do when we give water, you know, to people. We're changing concentrations and we do, you know, we give bicarb. It's exactly what we do. It's We're just, not as comfortable with that. There's a difference between them. bicarb yeah. and, a, and a strong acid. That's true. Right? So like hydrochloric <laughs> acid is yeah, strong acid. <laughs> that's true. We're not talking about dissociation. pure H plus, yeah. right? We're not talking about giving like a, a weak acid medium base of bicarb. As Roger called it, battery acid. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> We're hooking him up to a battery acid drip. You know, <laughs> I, I had a question uh, about this. Is Jones? Your husband is on a Duracell drip. He'll be fine. <laughs> I had one uh, case uh, as a fellow where my attending decided to treat a patient with ammonium chloride. Uh, this particular attending physician didn't like the idea of hydrochloric acid and he recommended ammonium chloride for this patient with severe kalemia, was patient on plasmapheresis with citrate and a very complicated case and patient got it. So when I move on to become an attending at my uh, next institution, I tried a few times to get ammonium chloride and I could never pass pharmacy. And, and more recently, I had another case of a patient with a pH of 7.75. And I called the ICU attending and we spent 25 minutes on the phone. And he would just not agree to take the patient for a hydrochloric acid to the ICU. So we did what you said, Roger. We dialyzed the patient. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. A lot of these patients have a respiratory alkalosis as part of it anyway. And then you just paralyze them and, you know, you can take care of that too. The, the other part of the brown paper bag, have breathe into the brown paper <laughs> bag and induce a respiratory acidosis. Circling back to the um, dogs. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just looked at the paper and they, and they, okay, um, and you were asking about the chloride, Joel. And uh, because here it says it was plus 170 and they gave 10 millimoles per kilo and the dog's mean weight was 16.8. So um, they basically gave 170 milliequivalents per dog, essentially. (laughs) Per dog. So there you go. So that's where the chloride came from. After Josh measures his book, though, unit of measurement not oftentimes encountered in clinical medicine per dog. (laughs) Per dog of hydrochloric acid per dog. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) 
I had a question about the cellular buffering that's shown in 10.4. And, and I was surprised at how much sodium proton exchange there was. Because it seems like it's intracellular sodium being ex- sent out and hydrogen ions being sent into the cells. But I always think of like sodium concentrations inside of cells being really low. Like there's lots of potassium inside of cells and very little sodium. And I wasn't sure if someone had like wrapped their head yeah, around that you, and could explain that. Well, they're only getting 180 milli equivalents. So if they all, if all those have to come out, divide that by the volume, you know, it's not a lot. Okay. So just because the, cells, the so. amount of absolute as uh, H plus ions is still small. It can still exchange yeah. the small number of sodium ions out. We're still cool. Okay. Yeah. 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 And again, this is still hydrochloric acid. It's the same. I think, yeah, this is, this yeah, is, this is what you want to do to people, Roger. I get it. <laughs> yeah. This is what I want to do to people. Exactly. I'm going to nephrectomize people and then give them an acid load. Professor of medicine, ladies and gentlemen, professor of medicine. Well, I just want to make one quick comment, but I don't know. And I wish I had a dog, but I don't have one. But I once I had a patient who was a veterinarian. And when he was told that he had CKD, he was like, came in and was completely agitated, very nervous because he was saying that uh, CKD is so common in dogs. And this idea of like dog dialysis, like that he had seen before, it really, really, it really, really scared him. That's when I learned that. And then they do dialysis for dogs. Yes, they do. And they do. They can do dialysis. I thought yes. cats yeah. get more kids get cats get a lot of kidney failure because they don't drink reliably. Yeah, our, our cat got like emotionally upset and went on a hunger yeah. strike, and then like put herself into liver failure. Yeah. It was like they're crazy. obstinate. Like these these, these animals. Yeah. Make no well, sense no, it's just cats. You know how little kids like, like hold their breath until they pass yeah. out, but cats, no, no, cats specifically will cats. They're just like they're screw crazy. you. I'm just gonna die. Yeah. We'll do it. Also, fun fact, cats jaundice at the tips ah, of the that's ears. That's so cute! And under the tongue. Those are the only places you, you can see <laughs> it's it. It's really cute. Because they have fur everywhere else. Okay, Joel, what are we doing? Are we... Yeah. Uh, oh. So we're, we're just... We're, uh, yeah, no, no. We're t- besides cat jaundice <laughs> at the tips of their ears. I can show you... What about some grizzly bears? <laughs> well, it's been a while since we talked about grizzly bears. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're kind of the, the the rest of this chapter really starts to get weird. Uh, there's this bit about the intracellular pH. I, I've never understood intracellular pH as a thing. He like, said that it's real variable from organelle to organelle and region to region. That it's not an easy thing to measure or to assess. But ultimately, that's what matters, right? The intracellular pH has got to be intimately related to the extracellular pH. And ultimately, the function of cells, proteins get phosphorylated, get activated, inactivated, and the pH has got to be a critical factor to, to determine the activity and function of those proteins. So, I, I totally yeah. agree that the intracellular pH is the one that matters for all the stuff that happens inside of cells, which is probably where most of the physiology happens. We just have no good way of measuring it in like living whole people. And so it's like we kind of assume that extracellular pH is equivalent to intracellular pH or like gives us a readout on the physiology of intracellular pH. But I just don't know how to like interpret these arguments like bicarb amps are going to decrease your intracellular ph there's like this one study from like 25 years ago that everyone keeps citing and no one has any clinical evidence that it matters and it's very like 
frustrating. Like, at least let me fix the problem I can see as opposed to the theoretical problem that I might be causing when I fix the problem that I can see, you know? I feel like if I'm yeah, there... No, I, I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it just kind of goes back to the discussion we had earlier when Leticia uh, brought up this, this question about the potentially detrimental effects of a biker drip in terms of PCO2 and intracellular acidosis. Again, uh, clinically, we don't have no ability to to measure that. Let's use that as a, uh, a segue to talk about the section on respiratory acidosis because this is we've done the we went through the math earlier where we talked about the ability to change the CO2 in response to a uh, metabolic demand. Here he runs the opposite experiment. He says the bicarb also is variable, right? Acutely, as Roger talked about, acutely, you just get this uh, equation changing that. But chronically, the bicarb is going to be adjusted. And he runs through the equation with a bicarb of 24 and, and having a PCO2 of 80 gives you a pH of 7.1. But if you are able to increase the bicarb to 28, you get a pH of 7.17, and that's and that would be with acute that would be the acute change in bicarb. But with chronic respiratory acidosis, your bicarb would go all the way up to 38 with a PCO2 of 80, and there the pH is only 7.3. So you get this uh, delta from 7.1 with no with if you're unable to adjust the bicarb all the way to 7.3, a very modest change in pH, if you're able to titrate that bicarb up in response to that uh, respiratory acidosis. Again, the exact same experiment that we ran earlier with changes in CO2. And it just shows here how flexible the bicarb buffer is, that both the CO2 floats in responses to changes in or pH and the bicarb floats and changes in responses to changes in CO2, making it super flexible and really uh, being a very, very effective buffer. Gets back to the very first paragraph of the book, which you talked about the three factors that affect pH, you know, the PCO2 and then the ability to create or remove bicarb. That to me is the chapter. Um, and I'm, if there's anything else that people really loved about this chapter, I'm happy to hear about it right now. Otherwise, I'm going to call this. Did, did we talk about uh, measurements of, of bicarb, difference between ABG and, and the serum carbon dioxide? It's, I think it's an important concept. Talk know. to us about this. Yeah, no. So it's uh, very important to understand when we order tests, uh, when an arterial blood gas or a venous blood gas is ordered, the instrument will measure pH and the uh, partial pressure of carbon dioxide, the PCO2, and using the Henderson-Hanelbach equation will calculate the bicarbonate. So when an ABG or a VBG is reported, the bicarb was not measured, it's just calculated. Conversely, when you obtain a basic metabolic panel, you uh, the lab reports a carbon dioxide. Well, the first question is, why does it report a carbon dioxide? Why doesn't give us a bicarbonate, right? It's just because the way the clinical assay or the instrument works. Essentially, you take the venous uh, blood specimen, they add an acid, which is going to uh, uh, react with the bicarbonate of the patient, and it's going to convert and generate carbon dioxide CO2, based on the equation that we discussed, and the machine using the colorimetric uh, device will measure or detect carbon dioxide, which will come from the bicarb. And, and so the total CO2 is slightly higher than the bicarb yes, because, because of that, because you're not only measuring what the, the CO2 from the bicarb, but some of the CO2 in the blood, but it's, it's significantly... Yeah, it, it's just because the machine report a carbon dioxide, which comes from the bicarb that got converted with the acid, 
plus 0.03 multiplied by PCO2, which is the dissolved carbon dioxide that already exists, which is minimal. This is what I always say. If you get an, an ABG and a basic metabolic bandit at identical time, you should expect the CO2, the CO2 on the BMP to be slightly higher than the calculated bicarb in ABG. When that, when they go in the opposite direction, I'm always, it's important because you or may not be looking at values that were obtained within the same period of time and may be inaccurate when you try to correlate the ABG with the bicarb and the BMP. You have to make sure they are done within a time frame close to each other. And so like doing, doing the math here, JC, like in, in the worst case scenario, like really bad respiratory acidosis. So someone has a PCO2 like 80 or 100, that means that their chemistry CO2 level should be about three points higher than their calculated bicarbonate on a VBG or ABG. Is that is that come out about right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think so. You got I think I'd only be three points higher. You have to subtract 100 from normal 40 and then multiply that. So it's going to be a little It's usually less. one or two points. You know, if you're comparing the two. Yeah, one or two. And it, it is minimal. So, JC, do you have a problem with a blood gas calculated by carbon? No. I, I don't have a problem. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. No, I'm telling you, people tell me all the time on rounds, well, we don't use that because it's, 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 because it's calculated, not measured. So I say, well, do you believe the pH? <laughs> Yeah. Do you believe the PCO2? Yeah. yeah. Then why don't you believe that? Because that's the only bicarb it can be if you believe those other two because of the Henderson-Hasselbach equation. Uh, it's a broken record. Every time I'm in rounds, once a week, this comes up. Now, granted, if the pH is a little bit off, not a perfect measurement, and the PCO2 is a little bit off, those two could, they go off the wrong, the both the right direction, the math is going to make it a little bit. But people don't look at it that way. They believe the pH, they believe the PCO2. So there's no reason to measure to measure the bicarb. And I think it's important also to realize that for the reason you said the venous bicarb will be a little bit higher because it's the total CO2, but also a venous bicarb will be slightly higher than an these are, you know, ABG is an arterial specimen and a and a BMP is a is a venous specimen. And venous specimens always have a higher bicarb because some of the CO2 that's carried in the blood gets buffered. This is this is on page uh actually 318 he talks about hemoglobin hemoglobin buffering mm. bicarb, you know, CO2, you know, that as CO2 is released in the venous blood, deoxyhemoglobin is a very good buffer. So CO2 goes in the cell, forms the carbonic acid, the, the hydrogen ion gets buffered by the hemoglobin. And as a result, you have CO2 plus H2 because H2 CO3, the H plus gets buffered by hemoglobin, the HCO3 minus goes out of the cell. So normal venous bicarb is already going to be slightly higher. So I always tell them, you know, don't tell me the bicarb from the from the BMP for two reasons. It's done in a different specimen. It's supposed going to be higher automatically, and it's done at a different time. And I just use my blood gas one. And I believe that, and I use the the Venus one, and I look at that, and and I go from there. But I tell you, I no matter how many times I try to explain this, the pulmonologists, you know, <laughs> walk away and they probably go, "Oh, he's nuts again." The bane of my existence. No, no, what I, you're I, I, it's. It, it's very interested to hear your thoughts, Roger, because, you know, fun fact is, uh, and I, I'm an immigrant from Peru, and uh, there is no carbon dioxide lab value available. And I didn't see that until I came to the United States. It's like, wow, you can measure bicarbonate in Venus samples. I didn't know. Uh, I learned SFAs. I read this book as a medical student without even understanding that you can measure a carbon dioxide and basic metabolic panel, and you can handle clinical medicine without a CO2. So uh, it's very interesting. And I like the, the comment. I have not thought about the fact that the venous blood sample 
is going to have a little bit different part PCO2 as well than the arterial PCO2. So when you do this 0.03 multiplied by PCO2 calculation, will push up the dissolved CO2 a little bit more. So yeah, this is why we get one or two more points in your uh, BMP compared to the ABG. Remember, a lot of the CO2 is carried by hemoglobin. You know, the PCO2 would be higher if it didn't go into the cell um, and carried by hemoglobin. And the amazing thing, this is another amazing, that I just can't believe it is so cool to me, is that it's only deoxyhemoglobin is a good buffer. So the, 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 the hemoglobin picks up CO2, uses that CO2 that would have been carbonic acid. It buffers it with hemoglobin. The bicarb gets exchanged. The bicarb goes in the blood. It's slightly higher. The minute the oxygen hits that hemoglobin, Bingo, it's no longer a good buffer. It releases the hydrogen ion and you get CO2 back and you ex- exhale it. To me, that is just mind boggling how, how that works. It's so clever and it, it's all done to keep the PCO2 lower in the venous blood and to carry more CO2. Great point. That was good. Okay, that is a great point. Are we putting this chapter to bed? This is our indoor record. I, I, that's what I was thinking too. This is a record. We're two hours in. Okay. <laughs> There were only like 10 words in the whole chapter, though. We've just been talking about numbers. We're laying down some important foundations. I am so excited to go into acid-base. I think acid-base is one of the most interesting parts of clinical medicine. And this, we've talked about chapters that are the broccoli before. (laughs) This is the broccoli of acid-base. Like, You don't like broccoli? We love it, but no one's like, yeah, let me save that for last. It's the best. Yeah. I like ice cream. <laughs> like mashed potatoes. <laughs> when you all come for dinner, I'll make like broccoli five ways or something. <laughs> <laughs>